We are in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians as we come to the end of this great book. It challenged us in so many ways. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 as we close out this series today. We will be starting a new series uh, next week called The Times of Trouble, short six-week uh, series uh, dealing with some various trials that come into our lives. And then uh, in June, we will start the book of James. So we'll be there for the summer. So 1 Corinthians 16, I'm going to read all 24 verses. So please listen carefully as this is God's word. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of, the, of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours, Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We need to be reminded of Christ and the cross, the greatness of the gospel, and the need for the church. Thank you that all the answers to all our problems are found first and foremost in Jesus. Thank you for this letter of 1 Corinthians and what it's taught us over these past many months. Thank you that it's a love letter to us. Thank you that it points us to Jesus. We need him. 
And so we pray this morning by the power of the Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. I'm going to talk about train wrecks this morning, and uh, Deb Farrow thought I might be making that personal, but uh, I'm going to talk about an actual train wreck. So if you've read the books of the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, or listened to his radio program, Renewing Your Mind, you may have heard about the train wreck that Dr. Sproul was in back in September of 1993. He gave an account of this event in his book, The Invisible Hand. I commend it to you. It says, do all things really work for good? It's a wonderful book. And he writes, it's a little long, but we'll get through it. My wife and I got on the train in New Orleans. It was running late, and we boarded after midnight. Our sleeping compartment was already made up, so we retired immediately. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I was awakened while flying through the air in the darkness of our cabin. I heard the screeching sound of metal against metal as the train bounced to a halt, but I continued moving until I crashed into the opposite wall. My wife had been asleep in the upper berth when the accident occurred, and her inertia was arrested by a leather harness designed to keep passengers in the upper berth from rolling out of bed. The lower berths have no such harnesses. Then the steward was at our door asking if we were hurt. The woman in the next compartment was screaming that she was bleeding and couldn't open her door. I moved to help the steward get to free the woman. In the initial moments of the crash, I was not alarmed. Perhaps it was shock. I assumed the train had been involved in an accident with an automobile, an event all too common at railroad crossings. But when I stepped in the corridor to help the steward get the woman's door open, I saw a huge column of fire rise 50 to 75 feet in the air forward and right of our car. Now I assumed we'd hit a gas truck to create such a fire. My wife hadn't yet seen the flame, so I, trying to sound calm, said to her, Vesta, we need to get off the train. She said she had to find her clothes and her shoes before she would get off. I could see the flames were moving in our direction, and again, I advised Vesta to hurry up and get off the train. She would have none of it. She wasn't getting off until she found our shoes. I said, forget the shoes. We need to get off now. But she found our shoes, and we got off the train fully clothed. From our vantage point at the rear of the train, the scene before us was surreal. Dense fog mixed with clouds of smoke rose from the swamp. The pillar of flames was visible on the right side of the train. I could see a ray of a boat's searchlight eerily piercing the fog and smoke, and I could make out the form of train cars protruding from the water at a strange angle. I had no idea that more cars were submerged beneath them. Scores of people were milling around by the tracks, many with blankets, None of us realized the full gravity of the situation. There were no shrieks of pain or panic among the survivors. There was also no realization that 47 people had been killed. Those who perished died in the first minutes after the crash, trapped in the submerged cars. And as the danger of the fire passed, I moved back towards the train and noticed our car was resting on the bridge, its wheels off the track. I could have the picture up on the screen. That's the actual train crash. The 1993 Big Bayou Canute train wreck 
one of the worst in the history of Amtrak. And Dr. Sproul was on that car right there, the one hanging off the bridge. And they got out and had to walk along the bridge to get over to that side. And that's the actual train wreck. The picture was taken the next morning. So what actually happened in that Alabama bayou between New Orleans and Mobile? Well, the investigation put all the pieces together. It began with a dense fog, which caused a commercial boat that was pushing barges upriver to become disoriented. To make matters worse, one of the heavy barges suddenly broke loose from the boat and became a runaway, crashing into the railroad bridge. It was a swivel bridge that pivoted open to allow the boats to pass. So instead of opening like this, it turned sideways. Well, when the runaway barge hit the bridge, it hit at the swivel point, moving the bridge just enough to open to separate the uh, train rails. Now, Amtrak has a warning system built into its rails. When a track separates, an electric current is disrupted, which signals the train that the track is separated ahead. But the separation occurred just seconds before the train reached the bridge. The engineer had no time to slow down, and a brand new supercharged engine literally flew off the bridge and plunged into the muck of the bayou, burying itself and its crew in the ground 80 feet below the bridge. When the engine left the bridge, the fuel lines were broken, spilling tons of diesel fuel into the water, which ignited into the Tower of Flame. And as more ro cars rolled off the bridge and into the water, the momentum of the back cars was slowed as the cars sort of fell on top of one another in accordion fashion. All of this happened in seconds. Dr. Sproul writes that we were the last ones off the train. A train worker helped us off and herded us down the tracks away from the fire. We sat by the tracks with the rest of the survivors for three hours waiting for help to come. The accident occurred in such a remote area, there was no road to it. The only access for rescue workers was either by train or by boat. And at that point, there was only one track to use in either direction. We later learned a freight train was behind us. And when the accident was reported to it via radio, it had to stop and back up an hour's journey to Mobile to clear the track so a rescue train could come to the site. When the rescue train arrived, it had three coaches filled with firemen, paramedics, and policemen. A quick triage was conducted, and the survivors were put aboard the three coaches according to the severity of their injuries. Those in greatest distress boarded the nearest car. We proceeded to the furthest car. Like the freight train, the rescue train then had to go backward toward Mobile. During the hour-long trip, two passengers suffered heart attacks. When the train reached the outskirts of Mobile at a major highway, it stopped. We got off the train, and we were processed through another triage point. There were more than 100 ambulances and buses waiting there to help in the rescue. When we arrived at the hospital, there were more than 100 medical staff waiting at the entrance to treat us. My wife and I were checked and released. I seemed to have no injuries and was just eager to get out of there and call home. 
I didn't realize I'd sustained a back injury until the next day. We weren't able to get to a telephone until five hours after the accident. We weren't all that concerned, however, because we assumed that no one at the Ligonier offices in Orlando would have heard of the accident. Eventually, I called the office, and when the receptionist answered and recognized my voice, she started to cry. Footage from the crash site had already aired on CNN, and none of them knew if we were living or dead. A true story really happened. You can take the slide. It's already down. Good. So what does this story have to do with the book of 1 Corinthians? Well, more than you might think. Of all the churches mentioned in the New Testament, Corinth was the train wreck of churches. We're now at the end of 1 Corinthians. We have waded through church disunity, disrespect for authority, sexual immorality, divorce, lawsuits, spiritual arrogance, unruly worship, leading fellow believers to sin against their consciences, idolatry, shaming believers at the Lord's Supper, and heretical notions about the resurrection. We could have a TV show called The Train Wreck at Corinth, and there would be plenty of material for scandal and drama. But what we also work through were the Apostle Paul's teachings about the gospel and the cross and team ministry and doing church together and using our freedom to love and serve one another. We read the noblest expression of love, the fullest treatment of church unity, and the grandest exposition of the resurrection of the body. We learn how important the church is to our Lord. We receive clear instructions about the Lord's Supper. And now we come to Paul's final words to his spiritual children. And I want you to notice two things. First, when there's a train wreck, it's usually not planned. Whether it's a real train wreck or a metaphorical train wreck. It just happens. One thing goes wrong, which leads to another thing going wrong, which leads to someone getting hurt or getting mad or loud or proud, and then it's every person for themselves. But no one knows where to go or what to do. And so often they just freeze. They're struck dumb and numb, and they can't move. Soldiers call it the fog of war. Athletes call it quicksand. And when it happens in churches, we should probably call it Corinth. But second, notice there's a critical component to the recovery. Soldiers find their way out with the help of their unit, their team, or their task force. Athletes find their way out when teammates come alongside them. Train wreck survivors need rescuers, first responders, police, fire, paramedics. And churches need community. We overcome disunity with unity, disrespect with respect, arguing and arrogance with welcome and worship. And it has to be done corporately. It has to be done in community. It has to be done intentionally. So with all that said, we're going to look at this chapter corporately. I'm not going to go passage by passage as I normally do. And I'm not going to look at each of the individual points that Paul makes here. I'm going to try to take a panoramic overview of the chapter as a whole and see what principles we can draw out that make for a healthy church community. What principles are here that build 
community and help us to overcome all the problems that the church at Corinth and churches today experience. We're going to look at four of these principles and see what we can learn from them. And we start by seeing that a healthy church community is international, but also interdependent. International, but also interdependent. That should be the first blank there in your outline. Although, through most of this chapter, Paul is making personal comments, the context is markedly international. At least five Roman provinces are mentioned. Galatia in verse 1, Judea in verse 3, Macedonia in verse 5, Achaia in verse 15, and Asia in verse 19. And these areas of the Roman Empire reflect very different cultures and conditions. European and Eastern, Jew and Arab, Greek and Roman, urban and rural. We see a church that is penetrated into all of these very diverse places such as the power of the gospel. It's fascinating to see how mobile this international church proved to be in the Mediterranean world of the first century. This mobility is immeasurably improved by the efficiency of the Roman Empire. Roman roads radiated throughout the provinces. Roman legions ensured that travel was reasonably safe. The Romans also had a very effective postal system for these letters to go back and forth, and various hostels dotted the main roads, much like the one Cape Vanderlinden uh, is working at this year. Throughout the whole region, Greek is the common language of the day. And so this community of men and women, singles and couples, businessmen and missionaries produced an international church, which took full advantage of the situation. The interdependence of this far-flung church is expressed in several ways. We see in this chapter a generous sharing of both money and ministry. The chapter begins with Paul's heartfelt concern for the church in Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 4, he's burdened with the needs of what's really the mother church in Jerusalem. It had been facing very difficult circumstances for a long period of time as a result of a severe famine would have hit Judea particularly hard because it wasn't very wealthy. In every church he went to, Paul stressed the opportunity and responsibility of meeting the needs of the saints, as he does here in verse 1. There's no better way of building relationships between different groups, different types of people, between Jewish and Gentile Christians here, than to demonstrate generosity and mercy one toward the other. In order to recognize this contribution, verse 1, Paul urges the Corinthians to maintain the habit of setting aside a regular amount each week. The reference to the first day of the week in verse 2 shows us he saw such disciplined giving as part of the regular worship life of the church. The amount should be determined by what each Christian experiences at God's hands, uh, however uh, they prosper, but the fact that Paul instructs each of you to take part indicates that having a lower income shouldn't prevent such planned systematic giving. In fact, Paul seems to see uh, giving as combining the systematic with the spontaneous, sort of sponta spont the spontaneity controlling the amount given, system ensuring regularity. 
And he makes it plain in verses 3 and 4 that everything collected would be handled carefully, a model which still needs to be followed by all churches today. Sharing our resources is only one way of demonstrating interdependence in the body of Christ. Chapter also reveals a generous way in which the church shared its resources in terms of people. Paul's own ministry is obvious, verses 5 through 7, but we read about an upcoming visit to Corinth by Timothy in verses 10 and 11. That couldn't happen without considerable cost being incurred by Timothy. And clearly Paul uh, believes that Timothy has an important ministry to bring to the church in Corinth. He encourages them to put him at ease, and when his work is done, send him on his way rejoicing. He also refers to Apollos, verse 12, who already brought great strength to the new church uh, at Corinth. Acts 18 teaches us that Apollos was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And now he's more than ready to make another visit to Corinth with the other brethren if necessary. And although Paulus is not ready to go to Corinth at that moment, he'll come when he has opportunity. Traffic's not all one way. Paul's been greatly refreshed by the visit to him from Corinth. He mentions Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achicus. I had to look that up. Verses 17 to 18. Even if all the other news from Corinth was giving him a headache and a heartache, he says he's refreshed by these people coming to visit him. And then there's another reference underlining the importance of this interdependence. Um, we have Aquila and Prissa or Priscilla in verse 19. This couple's of immense importance in the early church. They nurtured churches in Rome, Ephesus, and Corinth. The New Testament indicates they had some sort of family business that involved a lot of travel. And whenever they settled, they became the focus for the church in their house. So such giving and receiving of ministry um, between churches in completely different cultures. Equally helpful today. Particularly for us, the churches in the West. For the last couple of centuries, we have been almost exclusively on the sending side of the ministry. And we now stand in urgent need of learning how to receive ministry from the rest of the world, from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So that's the first thing, international but interdependent. Second, we see a healthy church community uh, faces opportunities, but also opposition. Opportunities, but also opposition. We see this most clearly in verse 9. There, Paul says, a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He's talking about his experience in Ephesus. He spent two and a half years in Ephesus. It's mostly recounted in Acts 19. Spent more time there than anywhere else. And one of the main reasons for that long stay there was all the openings for the gospel he had there. He dialogued daily in public meeting places with all sorts of people. And as a result, we read in Acts 19, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's a pretty wide open door. 
It seems likely that Epaphras, who is a, a resident, um, we know from the book of Colossians that he was at uh, Colossae and was um, converted to Christ during his lunch breaks from his business in the city. He returned home, founded churches, not just in his hometown, but in the nearby towns of Laodicea and Areopolis. Not surprisingly, Luke tells us, in, again in Acts 19, that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in Ephesus. Paul talks of sacrificial, costly ministry in Ephesus, the account of which he goes over in his farewell speech to the elders of that church in Acts 20. But if he faced great opportunities there, he also faced great opposition. And he mentions that as well, Acts 20, verses 18 and 19. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So this opposition is focused in three ways. He only mentions once here, but in Ephesians, particularly in Acts, we're given three ways that Paul was opposed. First, this confrontation with evil powers led to dramatic experiences culminating in a public bonfire in Ephesus when books of magic arts were burned. Anyone who's found himself facing the occult will testify to the difficulty of that, uh, uh, facing that. There's opportunities there for sure, but there's also immense opposition. Second focus of opposition was actually economic. came from the Guild of Silversmiths led by Demetrius. Preaching of the gospel is so successful that the lucrative trade of making little silver statues for the worship of Artemis was dramatically reduced. Ephesians in large numbers were turning from idolatry to serve the living and true God. They no longer wanted to have these little silver statues um, of the local goddesses uh, around their house. Uh, and so Demetrius and his colleagues are furious. They raise a public outcry against Paul and his companions, and they drag him in the local amphitheater where they tried to get him lynched. Obviously, that didn't happen, but that's what they wanted. Great opposition. Um, whenever the gospel is faithfully preached, it always challenges vested interests and makes influential people very nervous. The church has always been opposed not by the poor, but by the wealthy. Third source of opposition is the Jewish hierarchy representing the religious establishment. History of the church from the very beginning has shown that times of strategic opportunity for the gospel have been accompanied by opposition from other religions and other religious leaders. And there's a simple lesson to be learned from all of this, and that's the presence of opposition doesn't mean that we've somehow moved out of the will of God. There are many people in Corinth then, and there are many people today who seem to think that everything's supposed to go just totally smoothly in our lives if we're in touch with the Lord. But the New Testament doesn't teach that. It teaches quite the opposite. Opportunities for the gospel bring opposition to the gospel. And that's clear throughout the New Testament. Third, we see a healthy church community has resources, but also responsibilities. 
resources, but also responsibilities. We've already seen Paul's insistence, the Corinthians' uh, responsibility to share resources. We've seen the way Aquila and Priscilla made their home available to the fellowship of believers. I think the most penetrating comment comes here on responsible sharing of resources with Paul's description in verses 15 and 16. He says, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Stephanus' extended family had seen the priority in Christian community of simply being available with the gift of hospitality to wait on the needs of the saints. So they devoted themselves, talks specifically of a dedicated, disciplined lifestyle of serving others. As these folks began to meet the needs of other Christians, people began to recognize in them the marks of Christian leadership. Paul felt able to urge the Corinthians to be subject to such people, that is to respect and follow their leadership. I think that insight challenges our way of thinking about leadership. We tend to give leadership to those who are educated, who have a general ability to think and speak on their feet, who measure up to worldly criteria of leadership. But we need to take seriously the perspective that Paul provides here on leadership as service. Jesus taught essentially the same thing, Matthew 20. But Jesus called the disciples to him and said, You know that the rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It indicates that leadership of a local church will come from people who give themselves to serving the saints. And that's why when we have officer nominations next year, we're going to ask you to fill out a form stating how you've actually seen the nominee serving the church. Don't just take your word for it. You have to write down, I've seen him do this, and I've seen him do this, and I've seen him do this. If you haven't seen him do anything, then you don't get to turn the form in. We want you to nominate men who you thought were already elders and deacons because you've seen them serving in that way. That kind of servant leadership doesn't depend on education and qualifications or charisma. It comes from the grace of God, equipping people with gifts that enable them to serve others in the church. Apparently, the household of Stephanus lived like that. As a family, they served others, adults, teens, children, elderly, very young. One of the most effective testimonies to the reality of the risen Christ is a servant lifestyle of a Christian family. Let me make a plug for future mission trips. One of the great summers we had was where our whole family went on a mission trip, all seven of us. Plan some point in your life to do something like that. It's very different when the whole family goes together. It's kind of like camping. It's a bonding experience. But I encourage you to consider that at some point. 
But such resources for ministry are present in every church, every home, every person is a resource and has resources and therefore has responsibilities. It takes every member of the church to minister to the church as a whole. And using our resources and meeting our responsibilities are vital if the church is going to grow to maturity. And such growth is always close to Paul's heart. And his instructions to the Corinthians in verses 13 and 14 summarize the responsibility incumbent upon every Christian. It says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now, some folks object to that phrase, act like men. But most commentators take it in the sense of be courageous. And actually that phrase is translated that way, be courageous, in other places, uh, particularly in the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 1, when they translated the Hebrew to the Greek. They used this same phrase for be courageous. If you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Because in the course of this letter, Paul's pinpointed all kinds of areas where the people are either asleep or they're falling apart or they've lost their nerve or they've simply given up. And he's repeatedly challenged them to take firm action to put right what has gone wrong. Above all, he stressed the priority of love for everything they do as a church. So these words stand as sort of the core of Paul's instructions to an active but divided church. Finally, we see a healthy church community needs to be personal, but also pastoral. Personal, but also pastoral. This is Paul's personal farewell. He says, I write with my own hand. He had scribes that he dictated to, but then at the very end, he says, you know, give me the paper, you know, the tablet, not the kind that you have. Um, and he writes it out himself. Now, there is something of a parting shot in these last comments. He says all these nice things, and then there's one verse that's kind of got a zinger to it. Verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. He uses the word anathema. Clearly doesn't mean unbelievers, but those within the church who've been causing all the problems of division and chaos, which brought such heartache to the Apostle Paul. But then he says, our Lord come, which translates the Aramaic word Maranatha. Anathema to those who don't love the Lord, Maranatha to those who do. It expresses one of the deepest convictions of the church. It takes on profound meaning when you remember we've just had the explanation of the resurrection in chapter 15. And he says, come Lord. Much of the Bible we see this phrase, come Lord Jesus. Sometimes on really bad days, you'll hear me use that phrase. Something will happen. I'm just like, just come now. You may do that too. I don't know. Paul concludes the last two verses with a message of grace and love. Grace is coveted for all the Corinthians, even, and perhaps especially those who cause him the greatest problems, put up the fiercest opposition. And above all, nothing quenches Paul's love for them in Christ Jesus. That would mean that Paul's last word to the Corinthians is a reaffirmation of the central conviction that we are in Christ. 
It's easy to forget that Paul writes as a pastor. He planted this church. He was there at the beginning. Despite all their problems, he still loves this church. That's been his message throughout the whole letter. And like many good preachers, he ends where he began. He started this letter by saying, 1 Corinthians 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer and hope for all the members of the church, both in Corinth and in Loudoun County, is that we be sanctified in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean for us? I think in a very profound way, it means that like it or not, you know, when you serve in a flawed church, which all of you do, we minister best out of our own weakness. We minister best out of our own weakness. For a small example of that, let's return to R.C. Sproul. I just said good preachers end where they began, so I had to do that. And the 1993 big bayou train wreck. Because Dr. Sproul finishes recounting his story by talking about the bus ride from the rescue train to the hospital. He says, we're riding on a bus going to the hospital, providentially named Providence Hospital, in Mobile, Alabama. We were seated on the bench at the front of the bus. Across us on the opposite bench were three people, a young man and his wife and the young man's mother. The man said they were the only survivors from one of the coaches that had plunged into the water and was submerged at the bottom of the bayou. He told me when the accident happened, he had five seconds to push out the emergency window and pull out his wife and mother out of the train and into the murky water. Holding hands, they struggled to reach the surface. When they finally broke through, they were flailing about with their arms and legs as they fought to tread water. And then they found something solid under their feet. And the husband realized he was standing on the roof of a submerged coach. Together, they made their way to shore, escaping both the water and the flames roiling around them. The young woman was obviously in distress. Her hair was wet and stringy, and she had wrapped a blanket around herself. Her lips were blue, and her teeth were chattering. And as I watched the young woman shiver, I noticed she had neither socks nor shoes on her feet. I wanted to help, but I wasn't sure what to do. So I removed my shoes and socks and handed my socks to her. My shoes were too big for her tiny feet. She smiled and thanked me as she donned my socks and then doubled them over to provide more insulation from the cold. When the bus reached the hospital, we all got off, and I never saw the young woman or those socks again. In the aftermath of a tragic train wreck, one of the greatest theologians of the last 50 years gave up his socks to help a shivering young woman. In a small way, a moment of great weakness, 
we have in this almost comical scene the elements of opportunity, resources, responsibilities, personal and pastoral ministry filled with mercy and kindness. I've met R.C. Sproul a number of times, as have a number of you. I imagine him sitting there on that bus, taking off his socks. I don't know what it's like to then look at somebody and say, would you like my socks? And them saying, yes. I think most people are saying that. Um, but the sense in which the Christian life is essentially a pathway of weakness along which the Lord leads us, sustaining us as we go, strengthening us as we go, is becoming clear. With regard to tasks and relationships in the church, it's often right and part of our calling that we would embrace options where we find ourselves over our head, out of our depth, and we know we will not succeed without the Lord. And as regard to these circumstances, what the Puritans would call hard providences. It's often the case that God in his sovereign will will allow unforeseen difficulties to arise throwing us back on the Lord for support, subjecting our faith and our faithfulness to real trials, grueling trials. One way or the other, God works out in all of our lives this pattern of through death into new life with Christ. And at some point, every one of us will find ourselves trapped, submerged, overwhelmed, and lost in Corinth. And when that happens, it will take the church to pull you up and bring you to safety. And we can only do that because Christ has already done that for us. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I will close. Let's pray together. I've prayed some version of this prayer for about nine months now. I'm going to finish with it. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess that we often love ourselves in a way that allows us to justify our lack of love for one another. And although we claim the name of Jesus, our hearts turn elsewhere when troubles come. It's not our habit and instinct as it ought to be to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And though you have made us saints in Christ, we continue to define ourselves by our old life rather than by our new life. So look for us as a church, we pray in mercy, Forgive us. Thank you for taking us through 1 Corinthians. Continue to teach us who we really are in Jesus. Strengthen us as we seek to live it out for your glory and honor and praise. 
Would you make use of us in ways that demonstrate our interdependence, in ways that take advantage of opportunities, in ways that require our resources, in ways that we personally love one another in this community? Grant that we may live not like train wrecks, but like people called to be saints. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let me finish with the benediction from the very first sermon in this series, from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God bless you. We'll see you next week.